This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Bartholomew Town is presented in part by the University of Rhode Island Online, who offer a wide array of programs. Learn more by visiting uri.edu slash online. State Senator Sam Bell, welcome back to the show. It's been a minute. Thank you so much for having me on. So certainly want to get to the budget and your take on that. I know mm-hmm. that you're very careful in terms of looking through the budget before just making a proclamation during the state of the state or something like that. So I look forward to your your overall take, so to speak. But right now, the bridge is story number one, yeah. two, three, four, five. We see an article that I know I saw you commented on on X um, about Peter Alviti and a and the Boston Globe reporting a toxic work environment at the DOT. Look, this is way bigger than Alviti, I think. I think this we, we're starting to see as we kind of digest the story as a whole, that mm-hmm. it's more than meets the eye potentially, yep. uh, at minimum, we'll find out in due time. Your takeaway right now, just in terms of from a, cons- a constituent service standpoint, and then also from any sort of oversight that you might uh, want to bring to the table. Right. So obviously, my constituents have been suffering, and actually not just my constituents, but also a lot of the local businesses in my district, uh, particularly a lot of the Federal Hill restaurants um, and some of the Mount Pleasant restaurants have really been suffering from uh, uh, the the bridge closer. And look, I think the scandal here, you're right, it does go beyond Director Alvedi's leadership. You know, I've said for a long time, Director Alvedi is not the right person to be leading the Department of Transportation. I'm proud to have voted against his confirmations, both reconfirmations, both times. Last time was actually the only senator to vote against his reconfirmation. And I stand by those votes a thousand percent. But I do believe that we have to talk about uh, not just RIDOT's leadership problem, but the structural issues at RIDOT. One of the biggest structural problems. I think people are somewhat confused. Why do they seem so helpless? Why do they seem so disorganized, so unable to handle things in a professional manner? They can they still don't even know what happened. No one at RIDOT is even looking into what happened. They've hired an outside company and they're just waiting for this outside company to come back. They can't go out there and assess what happened. Why is that? Why are they unable to perform this basic task? And that's because RIDOT has been stripped bare. And everyone who who really looks at this, you often hear the same thread. It's, It's sort of technical. It's sort of boring. A lot of people gloss over it. I really focused on it in my um, speech uh, when I opposed the director's reconfirmation the last time. But RIDOT has essentially privatized everything. Most highway construction in this country is largely privatized. The people doing most of the actual construction work are going to be privatized. That's not like entirely the case. Oftentimes there should be maintenance staff, uh, people doing general maintenance work. A lot of that is not privatized. And here it is. Uh, Low level things like putting in crosswalks and stuff like that. I remember when I was dealing with RIDOT putting in some crosswalks, they just because it had to be privatized, they had to find a vendor. They wound up spending like $2 million on 11 crosswalks, which is absurd. And it wound up taking two years. And then when it got to the two-year deadline, they said it's going to take more time because you still have to find a contractor. So that kind of process, it just really breaks down a lot of the ability to do simple, basic things. But 
you know, okay, so you privatize that. And that's a problem, right? That means they rely on contractors who do all sorts of bad things. When the contractors pollute a neighborhood, they can be like, well, it's not our fault. It's the contractors. The contractors want to get sued and, and, uh, wind up getting, you know, convicted in federal court. And that would be an example of the 610 situation, which right. is I'm widely publicized. Of, yeah, I'm talking about the 610 poisoning scandal, uh, where uh, the contractor officially, but it's right up, but officially, of course, the contractor doing the work, uh, dumped a um, some fill that contained a particular polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon uh, that was linked to a particular type of scrotal cancer that was common among chimney sweepers in 19th century London. Um, obviously I was very concerned about this, uh, because it happened in my district and a lot of the affected communities, I think, you know, I really feel for the people who suffered from that. Um, uh, but I think the fundamental issue is privatization. What's unusual about RIDOT's level of privatization, and in particular, the direction Albedi has taken it, is they have privatized oversight. That is what's unusual. That bridge inspection RIDOT didn't do that inspection. AECOM did the inspection. RIDOT didn't go inspect the bridge. So they don't really know what happened. They just have to trust the contractor's work. It wasn't a RIDOT employee, this young engineer whose name they won't release, who clearly a hero. It wasn't a RIDOT uh, employee who did that, who found that. It was a contractor. And it was a different contractor than Barletta, the main contractor. And they had a separate contractor, VHB, and they were the people who blew the whistle. But all oversight is privatized. And in particular, he's privatized even the design of the project. So, like, all the, the design functions, Barletta, the contractor building it, they do the design. It's like privatizing the oversight of the contractors. And... RIDOT has been stripped bare. There's no one at RIDOT, apparently, who, who does bridge inspections. The state doesn't do that. Um, and to me, that's the structural problem. We need professional bridge inspectors at RIDOT. We cannot rely on private companies, because what if the private company doesn't do a good job and there's no company out there that does do a good job? And oversight should be done by state employees. And I think that's a lot of the structural problem at RIDOT. And there's more. Uh, but the union called attention to that. Um, you know, the top ex executive at Cardi Corporation called attention to that. Uh, and to me, I think this is probably the biggest structural problem going on there. You can go back to 2015. Jim Hummel did an investigative report really centered around the, the Warwick Appenog rotary, the circulator, the appenator, mm -hmm. as it was called. The title of it, 2015, Who Inspects the Inspectors? And it lays out exactly this problem in detail, stemming from, you know, an important piece of infrastructure, certainly a, a rotary. Mm -hmm. there, there, there is a risk to the general public if it's done poorly. Usually it's fender benders, but it's still important. Mm -hmm. But that same concept, when you start talking about bridges that carry interstate highways, now, all of a sudden, it comes into another level of scrutiny and concern. That's where we're at today. So it's not a new phenomenon. I completely agree. And it also, like you said, when you look at the 610 situation, all of a sudden, well, it's not RIDOT. It's whatever third party 
mm-hmm. firm that you want to deflect to. Completely agree. Major problem. Not talked about enough. And I'd love to see, in fact, I'll, I'm going to start to put together, this prompts me the thought of, we oftentimes compare, like, how do we rank up against New Hampshire or Massachusetts or something like that? But on a national basis, what percentage of, as you described, that sort of fundamental work is done by a department, by departments of transportation themselves versus private contractors and on that oversight level within the actual departments? How does this vary from state to state? I'm not sure, but we know it's not working here in Rhode Island. All you have to do is look at the Washington Bridge. Yeah, I I do think Rhode Island is unusual in the degree of privatization. We really are unusual. Some level of privatization is normal. There are experiments of deprivatization. There was a study, I think, in Connecticut about a a town that rebuilt a bridge themselves, and it was way cheaper. Um, And, you know, I really think actually full deprivatization is ultimately something that should be our goal. Now, we need to be able to bring on a contractor. We have a sudden big project that comes out that, like, you know, we don't have the initial capacity to handle. Some of that contracting to handle that kind of fluctuation, that's absolutely essential. But we need to have a permanent staff to do all the inspections, all the oversight work, as well as maintenance. People's job needs to be built up to fund maintenance. And when we can avoid privatization, we should avoid it. But we also ultimately need to be in a situation where we have the structural expertise to handle these problems. Let me give an example for something that's not the Washington Bridge. One of the challenges, and this is actually something I actually do know something about. I'm not a bridge engineer, but I am a geophysicist and, you know, I did my PhD work on seismology. So I, although mostly I now study uh, planetary geology, but um, so I know a little bit about seismic risk. And I have a lot of constituents who really complain about horrible, like, home damage, really disruptive levels of shaking from uh, road construction projects. RIDOT has Barletta place the seismometers to monitor it, and then a separate contractor analyze the data. I try to go hunt down the person at RIDOT who is in charge of analyzing the seismic data and the seismic risk. And because I wanted to understand what was happening. I was very concerned about the issues of uh, the contractor placing the seismometers themselves. And I also wanted to make sure that the uh, analysis work was done properly. But one of the things I did know is that Federal Hill is a place with an extremely unusual geology. And RIDOT was using an industry standard rule of thumb rule that is appropriate in other settings. But because Federal Hill is an unusual kind of hill, most hills have a hard rock core, and that's why they're there, because the rock is harder to erode than the surrounding rock. So most hills are often like sitting on hard rock. Federal Hill is different because of some complicated stuff having to do with deltas flowing into Glacial Lake Narragansett. Uh, Federal Hill is a big pile of soft sediment. As a result, soft sediment piles amplify seismic waves. Makes sense. You're sitting on something soft. It's going to shake more than sitting on a hard rock. 
they did not factor that in. And then they didn't factor in also the fact that Federal Hill tends to have an older housing stock and an older housing stock that was never built to accommodate risk from shaking because we don't have high earthquake risk here. So the housing stock is unusually vulnerable. The geologic setting is unusually, uh, is really actually extreme and very unusual. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, explain some of this to like some seismologist at RIDOT and like, this is my perspective and have a conversation about that. And eventually I realized that person just simply doesn't exist. There's some contractor out there and the contractor just as a normal engineering perspective of, okay, let's just apply this standard industry rule. Uh, and they don't have people there who can actually do the additional thought of, oh, wow, in this situation, this general rule of thumb isn't applicable because we have to understand the realities uh, of the situation. So I know that when it comes to like one of the few areas, like I really do understand privatization has broken the process. Um, and, and that gives me especially underlines my conviction that we need people at RIDOT who have the expertise to do this and relying on contractors is just not going to work. What's your take on oversight from the General Assembly that's going to take place on Monday? Is now the right time? Because at the end of the day, we still don't have, unless there's been subpoenas and documentation produced that is not in the public's purview right now, it seems like it might be a little early and it seems like there might be a little bit of of, of a performative nature to it. At the same time, people want it and people are ready for answers. There's no question about it. What's your take? I mean, I think it's no secret that the Senate president strongly supports uh, Director Albedi's leadership. I think he's wrong. I also think he's the wrong person to run the Senate, but he strongly supports Director Albedi's leadership. And I don't think the Senate president is interested in a hearing that is going to be around challenging Director LVD's leadership. And, I, you know, he would probably not disagree with that. Um, I think those politics are pretty clear. Uh, and so from the Senate side, there is, I think, a strong feeling that we need uh, from the Senate president. I don't know from the senators, but from the Senate president personally, he really wants to keep Director LVD there. Uh, and the Senate president has a huge amount of sway uh, uh, over how the Senate works. I think Senate is far too top down and people should think more independently, but it is what it is. That's the reality. Um, on the House side, I'm really hopeful that Speaker Shikarchi will um, utilize some of the House's tools. Um, I actually, I'm bothered by the fact they chose to have a joint hearing uh, because I think we would get more out of individual hearings. Um, and I wanted to see what the House would do on its own. Um, and then the Senate would look bad if we didn't do the same level of oversight. So I think that's important. Um, ultimately, though, I think we do have a problem, which is that none of the legislators, none of us actually know the technical realities or have the technical experience to be able to push RIDOT into a better plan for addressing the bridge problem. I am pretty sure that there's a way to get the bridge up and running in a safe manner that's a lot faster than they're doing it. I'm pretty sure that there are many reforms to make us actually less sensitive to anything going wrong with one particular bridge in terms of the traffic flow. 
I have always talked about reinitiating another connection across uh, the river, um, which I believe is doable, but there's a particular oil company RIDOT always wants to protect. It's a complicated situation. I think ultimately the oil company may have to sacrifice here. Um, but I do think there are other reforms that we can pursue. But again, I am not a bridge engineer and nor are any of my colleagues in the legislature. And so I just don't think we alone have the expertise to be able to push RIDOT in a direction to actually get what people want. What we can push for, and I do not think enough other people in the General Assembly have been pushing for, is changing the leadership at RIDOT, making broader reforms at RIDOT. Um, I want to give, uh, you know, especially Rep. Sanchez, uh, who uh, overlaps with my district, uh, a lot of credit for really speaking up loudly. And I really think that we need more people to speak out. And I really wish my colleagues in the East Bay, who are very frustrated with the situation, would do more to openly speak out and calling for changes in leadership at RIDOT. Um, I think that potentially may be a direction we might be able to move in. But unless we were to hire someone to figure out independently how to do this, we just don't have the expertise to magically get what I think people want. And that frustrates me. I wish I had that expertise. I've done my best to pour through the inspection reports, see what I can figure out from my own perspective. But I don't want to pretend a level of knowledge I just don't have. Yeah, I think that's going to be the big challenge for this initial oversight piece. We'll see what happens on the federal level. We'll see if the Department of Administration comes up with anything and what else may come down the line. But Washington Bridge, it is what it is right now. It's at the end of the day, it's just something that's really frustrating from a business standpoint, from a commuter standpoint, and from a political standpoint, when you're just being honest about how do we get here? Um, I want to, I would just want to make sure we can have, have a few minutes to touch on the budget, your mm -hmm. overall takeaways after pouring through it yourself. And you know, just kind of looking at the priorities in the budget, you've been both complimentary and concerned publicly on, on Twitter about aspects of this budget, what, what jumps out to you? Well, I mean, look, here's what I'll say in Governor McKee's defense. He is not Governor Raimondo, and um, Governor Raimondo would consistently push some pretty horrendous initiatives in her budget, oftentimes much more aggressive ways to funnel cash to rich people, uh, more legalized corruption in her budget. Uh, than McKee is doing. And we're seeing less of that. And some of the level of cruelty he's pursuing is not quite on the scale of some of the things that went on in the Raimondo budget. However, there's some stuff in here that really bothers me. First one is the Medicaid perch. And it's... It's the idea of going out, buying data from Equifax, the credit reporting company, income data, not credit data, but income data, and then purging people with a computer program based off those data is really concerning to me. When you do computer purges and not the traditional purges that have a human being actually reviewing it before you take someone's health care away, when you do that, like 
sure, they project it'll be about, um, it'll be more than 5,000 Rhode Islanders losing their health care because they're doing this. And that's painful. But to me, it's especially problematic to be doing this without traditional human oversight. And so I think that proposal is really cruel. I also just don't know that they've thought about the economic damage that comes with uh, almost $19 million of federal funds that's lost as a result of this. And I just think that economic damage is problematic. You know, the next thing is really the DHS crisis. Look, Governor Raimondo created the crisis, but McKee is propagating it. And he only approved 10 new staff members for the call center. That's it. Nothing else to make DHS function again. But he's cutting overtime at the call center. So he's actually doing a net cut to the call center, even though he's bringing on more staff. And the idea of cutting the call center budget, even with adding staff, is it's beyond cruel. You know, they have hour-long wait times on average, they admit, but uh, normal things that I hear from constituents is five hours. Yeah. People need to be able to pick up the phone and call DHS to be able to get their benefits. As a result of this, we've almost certainly missing out on tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars in SNAP funding, which is sort of the lifeblood of our, our local uh, small business grocery store economy. Um, and I just find it intensely cruel. Uh, and then blowing up the education funding formula is outrageous and unnecessary, particularly because he proposes additional education expenditures, but ones that are not going to grow in future years. By blowing up the future growth in the education funding formula, which has always been a sacred part of the budget, he is destroying our kids' futures. And I'll admit, I'm biased. You know, our son is two years old and, you know, he'll be in the Providence public schools and, you know, I don't know, about three years. So, you know, we really care about uh, the future funding on a personal level. And I'll admit to that bias, but I, I just, I really think selling short our children's futures, particularly when he's talked about being the education governor, is just, it's really unnecessarily cruel and if he cut out his additional educational spending initiatives, like hiring, spending all this money to hire these coaches uh, that really seem to be just to do teaching to the test um, and to pay for professional development materials that are really based around teaching for the test, I, I think that we could afford to actually maintain the education funding. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree completely with that, that piece. Um, I, it's confusing almost because, like you said, the governor is dedicated from a PR standpoint and I think from a mission standpoint, really. I think when you talk to him about this, even off record, just personal conversations, like this is the issue that I think he wants to be remembered for, the McKee doctrine of sorts. It's confusing why you'd blow up the funding formula. It impacts different districts so dramatically differently. It encourages, I don't want to say encourages the expansion of charters, but Look, I'm, I think we're at, we're at a crossroads right now with education, and I, I don't understand the, the proposal, and I wonder, looking back on it in five years, even three years in your case, when, you, when, when, when your son enters the, the system, you know, how different will public schools look in Rhode Island as a result? Big question, and 
again, one of those things that I just, I, I'm not sure I understand it either. Well, you know, McKee has been a huge promoter of particularly problematic charter schools, including the Mayoral Academy model, which is basically where most of the infamous charter schools in Rhode Island that have the worst abuses. Um, and ultimately, you know, some based off what I've seen, based off the reports, I really think should be prosecuted under the child abuse laws. But um, the, the, the Mayoral Academies should be. I think some of them. I, the I, I absolutely. I mean, based off what I saw at Achievement First, I, I think prosecution under the, the child abuse laws is merited. I do remember I had to report you, it to. I mean, I, I felt that it mandated reporting to um, uh, DCYF. I remember you touring it, and I wasn't there, but I remember the the account of you touring it. Maybe you wrote it yourself, or it was reported, mm -hmm. and you had seen things from a discipline standpoint that you found to be beyond the pale. If I, I mean, recall there were there were you know, young people disciplined for their facial expressions. Uh, you know, they were literally not able to set a toe out of line. They had lines in the floor that they had to walk on. I mean, the and these are young minds. They're they're very sensitive to trauma and mental health abuse. I, you know, I, I quite frankly think that there are elements uh, to our child abuse laws that requires at the minimum a significant civil settlement. Um. And I think there's a decent chance that at some point that will have to happen based on at least what I saw at, at this particular Achievement First Academy. Now, it is what's called a Greenfield School, which is some of their most infamous uh, schools. But again, I was truly shocked by that. Not all mayoral academies are going to be as extreme as Achievement First, certainly. But uh, this program has just had endless problems, um, whereas the independent charters tend to do so much better. And they, a lot of times they'll bring some cool, innovative educational models. But anyway, McKee is a big promoter of mayoral academies. So there's a, a real uh, concern, I think, that McKee is not authentically supportive of the public schools. And I just find a very hard to come up with another explanation for truly blowing up the education funding formula than that he simply wants to blow up public education in the state of Rhode Island. And many people want public education for their children. I mean, us included, like we want our son to go to the public schools. I was educated in the public schools, um, not in Rhode Island. So I got a much better education as a result. Um, but like, I really believe in public education on a fundamental level. And sure, you know, my grandparents were Providence public school teachers. So, you know, I am biased in that regard. But I just, I fundamentally believe in it, and I just think it is short-sighted, and if McKee wants to be known as an education governor and someone who supports the public schools, he's got to change tact on this. This is a terrible thing, and the education funding formula has been sacred. It's a terrible thing to have on your record if you want a positive record on education.